6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 7 and 8. You'd think that Lot would have learned his lesson. Where does he end up three chapters later? Sodom. And he's an alderman. I mean, sitting at the city gate. He's a, he's a part of the city council. So uh, uh, it's pathetic. But in any case, Lot, Abram's brother. Now, Abram, here's, his, here's Abram. This is before his name gets changed. But if I say Abraham, pardon me, I'm using the name by which we know him better. Abram and Sarai had their names changed. Abraham and Sarai and Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was the son of Hagar, who was an Egyptian from Ham, which had a curse. So if Abraham read his scriptural homework, he knew that Ishmael couldn't be of the promise. God was going to handle it his way. But if you take Abraham, Sarai, and Ishmael, they add up to 961. You might want to write that down. It's very important. 961. That's the square of 31. Aren't you excited about that? Well, let me help you a little further. There's only one square, 13 and 31, which if you switch the numbers, switch the square. 13 squared is 169. 31 squared is 961. And the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic rabbis, believe they've rediscovered the law of the square. Not only do all Hebrew letters have numerical values, the words thus have numerical value, and the all kinds of interesting discoveries. 961 is called by the Kabbalists the signature of God. The opening stanzas of the creation hymn in Genesis and the closing st stanzas of the hymn in Genesis add up to 961. And so they look for that and they see that as one of God's appointed seals. Why? Thir 31 is the number of L, the name for God. Nine, 31 squared is 961. They discovered all kinds of interesting places. Example, why did I bring all this up? Because Abraham and Sarai and Ishmael add up to 961. When Abraham's name is changed, Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah. Abraham, Sarah, and Ishmael don't add up to 961, but Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac do. Isn't that interesting? That's my excuse. That's one reason I'm really a mystic, okay? And it's also interesting that what God acted, when he changed Abraham's name was to put in a Hebrew letter that's basically a breath. Abraham. And that breath is the Ruach of the Spirit. And so it's interesting to see what God is doing. But this event takes place prior to the name change, so I apologize if I read it wrong, because I, it's anyway, Abraham, the one we all know and love. Verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. Now this is the first place the word Hebrew appears in the Scripture. It means the one who crossed over from the river. That's what most commentators believe. It's also derived from Hebrew, which was an ancestor. But in any case, uh, it's generally viewed, the, the term Hebrew is first used here. Abraham was known as the Hebrew. He was one who crossed over. He had his, I assume, somewhat nomadic empire there. 
And somebody that escaped from this devastating battle came and told Abraham, who dwelt by the Oaks of Mamre, and we're going to come back to the Oaks of Mamre, Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Abner, and they were confederate with Abraham. So we had an alliance here. Now verse 14 is interesting. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, what did he do? He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 of them, and pursued them unto Dan, that is, way to the north. Now, this word, the Hebrew word here for trained servants, occurs nowhere else in the Bible. But it does occur in some early Egyptian documents, and it's there used of trained mercenary soldiers. So the term doesn't mean just trained like they read some manuals. They practiced, were expert at what? The art of war. Interesting, provocative insight. Abraham is not a docile pacifist. He is a steward of resources and has anticipated, apparently, the need to, to bear arms. I think that's very fascinating. And we have here recorded, without much comment, the fact that he dispatches these trained servants. And it says, born under his own house. And his house is big. I mean, that's a, an expansive term, I'm sure. But 318 of these pros. And what they're going to do is defeat a confederation of four kings. And these four kings are no pushovers because they've just defeated the five-king alliance in the south which included Sodom, which included Lot, and that's how Lot was taken prison. You know, he was spoiled. So verse 50, we also find that Abraham was quite a general. God has many, many gifts. And apparently one of the spiritual gifts given to Abraham at this time was generalship because he does pretty shrewdly here. He divided his men against them. He and his servants by night smote them, pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Interesting guy. Now, incidentally, if you go up to Laish, up to the north in the area of Dan, they have just recently discovered a mud gate. Mud gates, by, by the description of the, the uh, art form, don't last. We've read about them, heard about them, never found one. Up in Laish, there is one that apparently was made and buried. Something happened to bury this so in such a way that it didn't get destroyed over these thousands of years. They've recently excavated, and it's one of the sites, if you're archaeologically oriented, if you're in Israel, you can go up to the north to the area of Don and see the gate at Laish. That gate might have been a gate that Abraham went through at this time in Genesis 14, which is kind of exciting. When we visited Israel last year, it was it's strange that that particular event, that particular explosion, somehow captured the imagination of the whole group. We saw many interesting things, but the mud gate at Laish somehow was a real link to the deep past, past. It was fascinating to see a gate that Abraham himself may have gone through. And indeed, it's possible, perhaps, that the attack and the destruction gave rise to an event that caused this gate to be buried before the elements uh, destroyed it, because these are not a, of a material composition that endures like stone kinds of things do. And it's, uh, so it's, it's considered a major archaeological find. In any case, now, Abraham is obviously the man of the hour, uh, he comes back, and we won't finish 14, but there is an event I want you to be aware of. When he comes back, he stiff-arms the king of Sodom, who wants to reward him, and he won't take that because he doesn't want... He regards the king of Sodom as aloof, a distant... Not, he didn't do it for him, he did it for, Ab for a lot. 
but he does do obeisance to another king. Abraham sees himself senior to the king of Sodom and all these other characters, but he sees himself junior, if you will, to the king of Salem. And we encounter here in the text a strange character, which if there were no other comment in the scripture, we'd probably pass into semi-oblivion, except in Psalms, in the Psalms and in the book of Hebrews. Much is made of this strange person because he is a king and a priest and one to whom Abraham gives tithes. Now, in the scripture, he is presented as having no beginning and any end. Many people believe that this interesting character by the name of Melchizedek, although it's really a title, not a name, was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. You can actually linguistically knock that down, I think, because Christ has a, he's a uh, priest after the order of, in the similitude of Melchizedek. Secondly, he is not, he is not some kind of angel. He is a man, the book of Hebrews tells us. And it doesn't mean he didn't have father and mother, but he's presented in the text. The text is presenting himself away in such a way for the purposes of design. Melchizedek is presented with no genealogy. Some people believe he is Shem, because Shem is still alive at this time, except Shem's genealogy we do know, and the writer of Hebrews points out this one we don't. So he's a mystery in some sorts, but he's primarily there for our instruction. And he, has, he, he is a king and a priest. And there are very few of those in the scripture. Very clearly, when God ordains the Levitical priesthood, that's much later, he makes it very clear that a, a priest is not to be a king, and a king is not to intrude on the office of the priest. Kings and priests are separate. There's only one person in the scripture clearly identified next to Melchizedek as a king and a priest. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Also, as we study the book of Revelation, we make much of the fact that there's only one other group of people that are kings and priests. And some of them are present in this room. The believers who have trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation have a destiny to be kings and priests. The 144,000 don't. So if somebody rings your doorbell and claims to be one of the 144,000, it's fascinating why so many of these weird groups want to identify with the 144,000 because their state, their status, is not nearly where yours and ours are. Or where, where ours are, yours and mine are. Which is a side issue, but... Anyway, we, enough of, I, I want you to be aware that Melchizedek thing happens here, but we're going to skip ahead at this point a little bit. And uh, now that we've got that background, Abraham was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre, and that gives me an excuse to get to, to skip over to Genesis 18, because an event occurs there that is instructive and colorful, and I can't pass this by. Not the least of which it has prophetic impact for you and I. In Genesis 18, it says the Lord appeared unto him, that is to Abraham. There's no doubt as to the identity of these three guys. At least one of them is very clearly that three guys show up by the oaks of Mamre. It says the Lord appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes, he being Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And he goes on, and, and, and he says, And I'll fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, and therefore are ye come to your servant. And he said, So do, as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah. He greets them first. Goes to the tent to Sarah and says, Make ready, quickly, three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. 
This introduces in both the Jewish and Arab cultures the issue of three measures of meal as a fellowship offering. The meal is unleavened. And you'll find in the, in the Bedouin traditions as well as the Judaistic traditions root back to this event right here. And this gives rise to our insights in Matthew 13 when we talk about that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hid leaven in three measures of meal. Remember? The three measures of meal is a tip-off, but that's a fellowship offering. What is the leaven doing in the fellowship offering? Leaven is always a measure of sin. It's quoted, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It's quoted three times in the Gospels and three times in Paul's epistles, in all cases, in derogatory fashion. Leaven is a symbol of sin because it corrupts by puffing up and is a model of sin. That's why the Passover, there's a, not only an ordination, but even a, a household ritual of getting the leaven out of the house. There's a whole thing there. Leaven is bad. So the whole idea of the woman hiding leaven in three measures of meal is the Lord's prophecy of heresies being introduced in the church. You've all heard sermons probably preached that uh, just the opposite, but the real import. Remember, here you have a rabbi talking to Jewish disciples, and when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hid leaven in three measures of meal, you should gasp in shock, not pleasure. It's an adverse prophecy on the church, as many of the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13 are. Anyway, that all emerges from this passage, and what happens here is Abraham receives these three men. They look like men, they feel like men, they talk like men, and they eat with him. Who are they? The Lord Jesus Christ and two angels. Now, this is a you know, pre-incarnate presentation of none other than uh, our Lord. Now, two of these three have an appointment over the hill in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to explore that in Genesis 19. But an event occurs that's not only amusing, instructive, but rather provocative. Because, oh, there's first an episode here, and I'm skipping over that in the interest of time, where they, in effect, prophesy that Sarah is going to have a supernatural birth, a child. Sarah chuckles in disbelief, and they call her on that point. And there's a whole episode that occurs in the middle of chapter 18. But for our purposes, I'm going to skip ahead. Let's pick it up about verse 16. The men rose up from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. In other words, on the road. Two of them are going to move on. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. All the nations of the earth. This is universal, not just Jewish. Here in the Torah. But moving on. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him that they shall keep the way of the Lord and do righteous and justice that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. That's a little confusing. Does he have to go down there to find out what's going on? No, he's just making clear that they are, that he gathers the facts and he will judge accordingly. That's really what it's saying. And all three men turned their faces from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And we have for verse 23 to 33, 10 fun verses. I really wish I was good at dialects, because I'd love to put this on with a good New York Jewish dialect for Abraham. But even in the King James, you can hear it come through. Abraham drew near and said, 
to the Lord. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, I've underlined that in my Bible. That's the issue that Abraham presents. He presents it in an amusing way. I want you to hear through all this what the Lord's answer to that is. Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham continues, Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are in it? This is Abraham talking to the creator of the universe. That's what we call chutzpah. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that, and that the righteous should be as the wicked... That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth, all the earth do right? Abraham knows who he's talking to. There's no guessing here. He knows who he's talking to. Now, some of this is a learning curve for Abraham. But notice how the Lord responds to this. Verse 36, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Oh, Really? Here's a place with maybe over a million in Athens, and if there's 50 good guys there, I'll spare it. Interesting idea. Now, by the way, we keep talking about Sodom, but remember, there's five cities involved. We're just using Sodom as the generic. There's Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, and two others. Verse 27, now, Abraham's not through. If you got chutzpah, you know, a little bit, the whole lot's a lot better, you know. Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord, who, who, I, who am but dust and ashes. Suppose there shall lack five of the fifty. That was, suppose I'm ten percent off, guy. You know, there wasn't quite fifty, but would you, would you believe forty-five? See, that's what he's saying. And, he's, and the Lord said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. Now, this is where you really recognize that Abraham is Jewish in his heart. And he spoke unto him yet again and said, Suppose there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there be thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon to speak unto the Lord. Suppose there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it. He's just haggling. This is first class, this is world class camel trading going on here. Now, if you're more Jewish, you can say this is the Arab, and, and you can do, play it the other way if you like. But, but um, I've spent that much time in the Middle East. I've spent more time in Manhattan, and I like the model I'm using. Um, this is Seventh Avenue, gang. Uh, verse 32. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak yet but this once. Suppose ten shall be found there. Notice what God says. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way, and as soon as he had ceased talking with Abraham, Abraham returned unto his place. He didn't carry it any further, did he? Fifty, forty-five, forty, thirty, twenty, ten. He backed off. What we're going to discover in chapter 19, is there was one there. And we're going to see what the angels had to do before the judgment could come. Now, why am I making a big thing of this? Because I think we need to understand God's ways, because His ways are not our ways, and the way we find His ways is in the Word. 
and none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, points to Lot in chapter 17 of Luke. We're going to look at that later. And makes a prophetic analogy. We are instructed to look at this situation in terms of the coming judgment on the earth. It's one of the several reasons that I personally believe that the rapture of the church will precede the wrath of God on the earth. Not all kinds of problems, don't misunderstand me, but I think to the extent that the great tribulation period is pouring out wrath, I believe the church won't be here. And I'm saying that because of 1 Thessalonians 5 and passages like this, because there's a principle that God lays down here, and I believe that God works by his principles, and a principle here that Jesus Christ pointed to. That's the reason I'm spending, I'm using this for seventh verse of Jew as an excuse to get into Sodom and Gomorrah and try to extract from it lessons that are relevant to you and I. Now, chapter 19 is transcribed directly from some of your late, late night cable shows. In fact, if you dramatize this on cable, you might shock that audience. You won't find anything more grisly. Now that I've got your undivided attention, look at chapter 19, verse 1. There came two angels to Sodom in the evening, and, so and Lot sat in the gate at Sodom. Now, that's not just a physical location. It's an office. If you sat at the gate, you're one of the city's elders. That's the way they did things. The gate was sort of physically designed as a place that the council met and, and acquitted themselves of the duties of the day, judging things and witnessing documents and, and passing rules and such. So this is like a county board of supervisors or something. Sat at the gate of, Sod of Sodom and Lot seeing, and you, you wait, what is Lot doing there? Boy, life would be simpler if he'd learned his lesson back in chapter 13. We're going to look at Lot's state of mind, seen through the eyes of Peter, in a moment, but so we don't lose our momentum. Let's keep saying right here. Lot rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, Behold, now my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go your ways. And he said, Nay, but we shall abide in the street all night. This is analogous to you going to Manhattan, checking into a hotel, and telling the doorman you're going to take a walk through Central Park at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I was in Detroit on a merger and acquisition with two partners. And we had to go from our hotel to a restaurant that was three blocks away. And the doorman insisted we take a cab, and he was doing us a favor. He wouldn't let us walk. Metropolitan centers, and this happened to be a very bad time at Detroit, so I'm sure that's not necessarily typical, but most major cities have areas that they won't let an out-of-towner go into for fear of his life. It's interesting. We'd look at Lot here. We're going to read some stuff that sounds pretty grisly. It's not grisly it measured against the yardstick of our own, quote, civilization, close quote. I've had four years of hand-to-hand -hand training as a trained killer, and I would not, I've been accosted in middle day in New York where I thought I was going to have to use it all. I was in better shape in those days, fortunately. Um, metropolitan areas, um, especially at night, but sometimes in broad daylight, are at risk. And Sodom was no different. So these two visitors, which Lot apparently recognizes as important guys... Because in his own way, you see him go to some bizarre lengths to show them deference here. They're going to they, they, go tarry in the street all night. And he pressed them greatly, and they turned into, unto him, and he entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread. Interesting, unleavened bread again. And they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young. That's bizarre. 
These aren't just the, the young toughs. The old men, too. All the people from every quarter. And they called upon Lot and said unto them, Where are the men who came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Now that's, the population is broadly homosexual. We don't see any hint of euphemisms in the King James of calling them gays or some other polite term. These guys are perverts. And they are, they have visitors in town and they want to take advantage of them. And they're upset with Lot for not accommodating them. Gets worse, guys. Lot went out to the door unto them, but shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Now, whatever else is true, Lot recognizes that this ain't good stuff. But Lot offers a proposal that blows us away as a compromise in Lot's mind. Verse 8 Behold, now I have two daughters who have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore they came under the shadow of my roof. Whew. What a bizarre proposal. It's hard for you and I to somehow imagine Lot offering that. There is another principle implied here that's interesting. If you are in an Arab country and you are the guest of the host, you need fear nothing from the host. I've been uh, um, the guest of the Algerian government under very strange circumstances, but I could take great comfort that as long as I was a guest of the Algerian government, despite other factors that were involved, I had nothing to fear. There is a deep tradition that if you're under their roof, no matter who you are, what the circumstances, you're safe from the host. And that you even see that come through in lots sets of values here. These men are under my roof. I have to do to, the, to whatever I can to protect them. This is a rather absurd proposal, but don't lose sight of where at least Lot's coming from in that sense, but we'll move on. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.